radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 691. Today we'll be talking about the racing from Puerto Mayo, one of our favorite tracks. And to help me talk about all the great racing and all the great action that happened over the weekend is my cohort in the UK, Rich Jowett. Rich, what is going on in the UK this evening? Well, it's a nice quiet evening in the UK, Jim. We've got an awful lot to talk about from last weekend's racing, though, haven't we? So I think we need to jump mm. in. Lots to get through. <laughs> Lots to get through. So are we going to start with listener feedback, Rich? Yes, a couple of things. So we had an email in from Carl Marsh. Not so much of a question, really, just a, a comment, really, about he spotted the kind of GoPro Marshall footage from Portimao at the weekend and was very sort of impressed with that and impressed with how sort of uh, busy and energetic the Marshalls have to be. It really does help to bring to life, I think, for us as viewers, what the Marshalls are up to or, or corner workers, as you tend to call them on your side of the water. So, yeah. And then he just went on to say that he remembers meeting our good old friend from the past, Jim Race, who was injured one weekend having had an accident in a race a great name for a bike race wasn't it Jim race and ended up corner working as well to help out yeah I mean I just replied to say very much to echo Carl's comments really which is to say that without the marshals as we've said before you know the racing doesn't happen and these people are pretty much always unpaid volunteers who sit out in all weathers for days on end through the year so we can only really as we've done before but it always bears repetition just keep on giving our gratitude to the people that are prepared to do that and to help keep the show on the road i agree with you very much i do love the gopro sort of on the marshall camera and they were stationed i think at turn five which is you know a lot of action happens there at turn five so it was great to see that action mm. Immense kudos to all the corner workers because they have done fantastic jobs so far this year. And again, without them, we could not do a race weekend. We wouldn't have a show. So I have the utmost gratitude and thank you. So for anybody out there who's been working corners, I don't care if it's the local club and the local track down the street. Thank you very much for letting the people who ride and race and track days and everything else for that to get done. Um, you don't get thanked enough for what you do. So a big shout out from MotoPod to you, all of you. And Carl was very much saying how professional and well-trained they clearly were. And, and very much every race is like that nowadays. And if, like me, you look back across YouTube, for example, and look at races of all sorts from the past, you know, it was a horror show quite often in the past. So the standard is really, really very, very high now, and quite rightly so. Yep, I agree. Very high standard that everybody's working towards, and that is fantastic. So thanks to Carl for that. We also had something in, again, from our friend Darren Andrews, new patron subscriber to the show. I think I mentioned it on the last show. Darren had asked the question whether or not this year's champion was likely to have the lowest average points score per round. We kind of said, well, we need to look back at the stats on that. And numbers are not necessarily my strong point <laughs> anyway. So Darren very kindly came back through on Twitter and did all the heavy lifting for us. So you will find us on the Twitter feed. But looking from 1993, the lowest scores were Mia in 2020 with 12.21 points per round, followed up by Nikki Hayden from 2006. That might not come as a terribly huge shock. And interestingly, Quattararo in 2021 was only scoring 15.44 points per round. Now, those two recent years, I think, are quite heavily affected by both the pandemic and the shorter number of races that we had in those seasons, perhaps. And clearly in modern day motor GP, it's super competitive so you tend not to get the same person winning all of the time certainly that's been the case the last two or three seasons anyway mm -hmm. i agree i will it be this year will be the lowest round per average 
it's very possible. Mm. Even even though it's going to be a 21 race season, which is the most we've ever had, it's very, very possible that it will be a very low amount of points per round that these guys will get just because we've had so many different people on the podium, so many people winning races. We still haven't had anybody do more than one. And it's just been one of those years. If we look back though, and we go towards back to like Nikki's 2006 year, that one is an outlier to me because Rossi was sort of in his zenith, but the bike let him down several times. Yeah. Rossi had a DNF at Laguna Seca. He had a couple other DNFs. Nikki had a couple DNFs. We we don't talk about the Drus incident in my house, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he had his set of DNFs too. So it wasn't a championship that nobody wanted to win. It's just that it was one of those deals where the, the two guys who were going to be going at it week in, week out had just bad racing luck where they were out. And that's basically what it takes. To win a championship, I, it takes consistency across the weekends. And if that consistency means that on that day, you can only take a fifth or you can only take a fourth or whatever that is, you take it because you will want those points where somebody else is going to want to risk it, perhaps maybe a little too much, and they are going to be on the ground and then they're not going to score any points. So some points better than no points, but it is interesting that these last few years have been very low averages. Mm. Just as a quick footnote, Darren also showed up who had the highest average points over the last 20 years or so, and it won't come as any great surprise to see McDoan featuring fairly heavily at the top of that list but we must remember that not only was he a class above the rest as a rider he was also on some pretty good machinery in a field that was not necessarily packed out with top level machines although there were some super fierce races as we will recall so Duan and Rossi feature quite heavily in that and interestingly Mark Marquez in 2019 he came in fifth I think it was with a, an average score of 22.1 points per round now this obviously as with all stats is like lies damn lies and statistics and it's very heavily skewed around the fact that there were fewer races in the past I don't think the points scoring positions have changed massively over that period of time not to my recollection there are obviously factors that will affect that average over that period of time but you tend to see trends and so Dewan and Rossi wouldn't come as any great surprise to see them and, and Marquez indeed as I said showing fairly high up in terms of their dominant seasons where they were serial winners so yeah interesting so Darren thank you ever so much I think probably that bears closer scrutiny but we were just a bit short on time this time around but it's something we'll keep an eye on and certainly in terms of this year yes I think it's highly likely that the sort of the lowest scores per round championship if you want to call it that between Mir in 2020 Hayden 2006 and Quattraro in 2021 that may well be broken this year so we'll keep an eye on that so I'm going to interject one other question. This is mm. from some of the guy, I, I forgot about it in the Texas race review, but this is from some of the guys that I was with at the track and I didn't really have a good answer. I'm going to get your answer, Rich. And mm-hmm. then I'm also, I want to ask everyone out in Motopodland to write in with what they think the answer is. So remember, write to Motopod at Motopodcast.com. Tell us this here. So this is the question. In many forms of motor racing, specifically auto racing, there is the one big race that everyone aspires to win here in America for NASCAR, the 10 tops, you want to win the, the Daytona 500. Indy cars here in the United States, you want to win the Indianapolis 500. Formula One, you want to win the Monaco Grand Prix. If you're racing endurance cars, you want to win the 24 hours of Le Mans. That's your big race that you want to win. What in MotoGP is the one big race that every rider strives to win? Now, my answer to that question was everybody's home Grand Prix. Mm. That's the only answer I could give. I can't think of one being a crown jewel. Do you have one, maybe? 
I have an answer, but it's not applicable anymore. But I would have said in the past, it probably would have been the TT when that was part of the championship table. But that dropped off in what, the late 70s, I think it was, or possibly the early 80s. But I think it was probably in the 70s on safety grounds, obviously, at that time. And that hasn't really changed. That's the really the only one that I could think of in the motorcycle racing world that would be considered a blue ribboned kind of event. I mean, like a lot of four-wheel, certainly Formula One, MotoGP has kind of spread its wings and gone to a lot of new venues in different parts of the world. There aren't that many tracks nowadays. I mean, there are obviously a few. Maybe Mugello would be the one that a lot of the risers would say they'd like to have that one on their scorecard. And Phillip Island, I guess, just because they're pure riders' tracks. But again, they don't have massive long heritage in the sport in the way that, say, a Monaco would have, as you say, Jim, in the Formula One realm, or even Silverstone. I mean, Silverstone hosted the first Formula One race ever, or first Grand pre-race as we should call it back in those days so yeah it's a good question but i think it's hard to answer that without dipping into the sort of fairly distant history yeah the only other thing that i could come maybe close to would be the suzuka eight hours and i don't really know if that's really riders so much as it was manufacturer yeah because it used to be all the gp guys rode the eight hours and you kind of maybe draw that parallel that that eight hour race was was a crown jewel but not anymore certainly was for the japanese factories wasn't it yeah. that was definitely the one and remains the one they want to win above all else but in moto gp terms i mean this was the well mustn't jump the gun but we've had european winners uh, of late haven't we so that doesn't even really apply in the context of very modern moto gp so anyway talking of very modern moto gp we really ought to get on to yes. there's a hell of a lot to talk about okay well let's get to it then moto three so from qualifying it was rain play the rain had been there all day on friday it seemed as though it was going to be relentless and it showed up again on saturday morning so the morning sessions were wet and the first qualifying session what it was raining for the moto three guys as it happened on to fagia nepa uh, joshua watley the brit they know how to go fast on the wet tracks and artigas were or sorry and watley was the last one sorry all made it out of the first qualifying session and they got to go to the second qualifying session and again there's some names there that really probably shouldn't have been in that session i don't think fagia should have been there i don't think nepa should have been there and i don't think on should have been there quite honestly but mm. such is the talent level in moto three that everyone's going to kind of spend some time in the Q1 session. With Q2 starting, the rain had ceased, but the track was just extraordinarily damp. There was no way that it was going to dry, so there wasn't any reason to try to use a set of dry slicks or anything. It was always going to be about what was on wet tires. The guys that came out of that first session, onto Fagia, they all went out right away. They started to just put down laps and get Giorgio Garcia. He crashed three times in the wet in that 15 minutes oh, miraculously <laughs> wound up qualf six it was a lottery i think is the best way to put it because yellow flags were streaming at all sectors at all times because somebody was either off on the ground or almost on the ground and it became just a wild mismatch mess of trying to figure out whose laps were going to be stricken from the list for whatever reasons there were some track limits there was yellow flags that caused laps to be canceled it was all over the place but on came through again having used the knowledge of the first session to be sit on pole followed by the team asia rider aji who looked really fast at the time then falon the frenchman to tie suzuki garcia again who had been on the ground three times and he really only was able to stay in that place because the last yellow flags destroyed a bunch of guys who had some good laps going notably sasaki guevara and ogden all had laps going i think fagia had a lap going as well but they were all scratched because because of that last yellow flag, which is your subject of rant that you love so much is should that person's fast lap who caused that yellow be thrown away? Mm. It's tough. That's a tough one. It's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's for another day how's that yeah i think that's true uh, one thing i will say just very quickly on qualifying is it does go to prove that in these conditions coming through q1 is a distinct advantage and you tend to see that across all of the classes that recent track knowledge clearly was borne out in terms of what happened in the q2 sessions generally speaking so not mm-hmm. necessarily a bad thing to go through q1 no, definitely not. I mean, I think it's a disadvantage when it's dry because you're going to have to use another soft and that soft might be the tire that you want to race. Um, I've often wondered if they should, as a bonus, you get an extra soft for Q2. I've always thought that, Jim, to be honest. I think it's ridiculous that having gone through that process, you are then scuppered and you're being one tire down. I just don't see the reason for it. It's so punitive yeah. and it's unnecessary. It seems like it's a weird penalty to take. Yeah, I'm not sure who originally thought that as a good idea, but I do have heartburn over it. It's mm. one of the things, I love the qualifying sessions that we have. I love how they're done and how it's broken out. It, but it's the one little thing I would tweak. Yeah, for sure. I was right out there with starter motors as a gripe for me. Yes. Of something that should be addressed. <laughs> but anyway, we'll perhaps save it for another day. Oh but. yeah, there's that. that's for a rant for another, another race. Oh, so they go to the actual race at the start of the race. Of course, it's a fully dry day. The rain is now gone because it's Sunday. It's bright. It's beautiful. It's sunshiny and we're all ready to go. The problem is that the Moto3 guys have only had roughly their 10 minute warm up session for any dry track time to figure out what tires they were going to take, what settings they were going to use. Obviously, they'd been here at the test of about maybe three months earlier mm. in rough terms. So they had some baseline that they could have probably used on there to start with, but it was definitely going to be interesting to see how all this is going to sort of fan out. Garcia got the whole shot of all whole shots and had jumped out to the front and he started to open a huge gap on the first lap. This was if he was ready to go and everybody else wasn't ready to go. Fascinating at that point. Anshu, who had pole, sort of looked like he was just going backwards and he was as if the pack was going by and he couldn't make anything happen. I don't remember if he had the harder compound tire on or not. I thought that he didn't, but he had a soft. I'd have to go back and relook at those notes. There were one or two people that did go with the yeah. hard, I think, but as to who it was, I can't quite recall now. Yeah, I don't remember it being a big name, but I, I did think that at first when you saw Ancho kind of going backwards, he's like, that's not really what you think the kid was going to do. Mm. Of course, the lead that Garcia had was completely gone by lap 10 because he had then been caught by the pack of Sasaki, Masia, Garcia, Guevara, Anchu. So the Gas Gas boys are up at the front. We've kind of come to this conclusion that those guys are going to be there week in, week out. It appears as though Sasaki has figured out the Husqvarna and has been doing well. It's like an uptick for him. He got off of the Honda and now either his style fits the KTM or there's a feel that he gets from that motorcycle that seems to really work for him because he has been at the front all the time and battling for it. And Anchu there at the end. And at this point of the race, I thought Anchu didn't have any pace. He was just lingering at the back of that five rider group. And I was trying to figure out like what was wrong with him because that's not Anchu's style to be there. If, if he's there, he's attacking, he's being aggressive. He's trying to pass you in places that maybe he shouldn't pass you. What did you think was going on, Rich? As you say, Jim, I mean, aren't you all bit Friday and Saturday were damp or wet sessions, so they weren't necessarily a good indicator for the race, which was reasonably dry and sunny at this point in the day. My initial thought was, as he suddenly had a dose of sensible pills administered to him, and he's just kind of taking it easy, biding his time, not getting too involved in scrapping, just sitting at the back of that group. Because if you recall, at this stage, say by mid-race, the front group was five riders, and they were a good two, three seconds up the road from a much larger 
a second group and it didn't look at any point in time that the second group was really going to catch up I didn't think so it was quite clear that one of those five guys in front was either going to crash or be in the podium contention battle so I I really thought Onchu was just biding his time and playing it reasonably calm and, and sensible, but that's not exactly how it ended up. But unless he was on the hard tyre, as you say, Jim, it didn't quite work out because, of course, having had the whole weekend sort of damp and wet conditions, albeit, as you say, they did have the test a few weeks ago. I don't know how useful that really would have been at this stage. So it might have just been that people just went a little bit wrong on the setup and on the, the actual race itself, they were just struggling with one or two things. But pretty much everybody in that front five group looked as if they could win the race. I thought so and as you say Sasaki really really good and the two gas gas boys I mean they are looking like the KTM team or the IO KTM team of last year really aren't they in terms of consistently being at the front in every single race so I think yeah if anybody's taken it to Foggia this year it's going to be one of those two guys and Garcia is a, a real little pit bull isn't he yeah he's like a little terrier just nipping at your heels all the whole time yeah at this point, I was interested in the fact that Foggia, who had started from P12, had fallen back to somewhere in the 20s, if not farther, had ridden his way up to 11th, and we're over halfway through. Again, the magic of Foggia has been so far this year that he shows up at the front at some weird time, and I'm like, there's a five-second gap between the front five and this pack of, let's call it another eight to 10, mm. the normal pack, in which Foggia's at the back end of them, like, I don't, did he miss the setup? That's the question I have. Uh, you know, there was no real good dry time, but he was, I think, either first or second in the testing that was at Porto Mayo. So, you, you know, these guys over at Leopard are not a uh, slack team. They're good. And you would think they would have thrown on the setup that they had prior, but it wasn't working for Foggia. But the guys out front, the next five, those five riders over the time that the rest of the race, was phenomenal racing it was attack pass repass attack pass repass attack you could throw a blanket over them at all times it was interesting because we got into that sort of let's call it six seven laps to go on you suddenly like turned it on mm. it's as if suddenly now he decided to take his brain out and he was making passes he passed like three or four guys on that long main stretch which i think is like over 900 meters he went to the inside back to the outside and past three guys in the space of about a corner and a half. I'm like, wow, well, aren't you is going to win this one finally? Like maybe he did get a dose of smart pill and decided that I'm going to stay here, conserve a little bit, keep the leaders in touch and I'm going to bolt. And I, I thought he was going to, I thought he was going to bolt. I think he may have tried to, except there was a problem. Garcia, Masia and, and uh, Guevara were all just as equally as fast and still had enough ride there to play at the the end but we got down to the very last part of the race and garcia made a great aggressive move to get to the front and then rode probably the lap of his life and won it by almost a full tenth which is unheard of in one lap garcia just put his head down and just pulled away now he got help a little bit because mossy and sasaki were kind of fighting each other and they did cut each other off and that that takes their momentum and kills their drive but i'm not going to take anything away from garcia in that last lap it was an amazing lap that he rode to get to the win it was a stellar last lap, as you say. It really was. One interesting observation that just comes to mind, Jim, just talking about Foggia, because either Foggia missed a setup or he was just mired in the pack or he was having a Dennis Foggia weekend that we've not seen so much of recently where he just cannot make any progress. But interestingly, those five bikes that were up front the whole race and juking it out, there wasn't a single Honda in there. So perhaps it was a KTM thing in the track this time 
don't know, but none of the Hondas really made any progress. So, yeah, it was a weird one, but I'm kind of inclined to think that just the dry track and the dry conditions on Sunday, as opposed to the rest of the weekend, just caught a few people out. But I felt sorry for Sasaki. He's got a win coming soon, as has Onchu, I hope. Because I do like Dennis Onchu, despite some of his antics. But uh, Sasaki looked, you know, really quite disappointed to have missed out. I think he was leading over the line with one lap to go. And as you say, he got mugged by Garcia. And then Garcia just really put the hammer down and great ride on the last lap. Yeah. Another interesting thing for the Honda versus KTM thing. I think the KTM gives a, the rider a little bit more feel on the front than the Honda does. I just, you, I, well, I only say that in watching how the guys on the KTMs or the KTM clones, take your pick, attack some of those downhill off camber turns. They seem to be way more confident in the front end that it's going to stick and stay where the Hondas don't look that way. They look a little more skittish. So I'm wondering if it was just, it's that track, it's the undulation. It'll be interesting to see what happens when we go to someplace else that has a fair amount of undulation. Like Saxon Ring might be interesting with that downhill plunge just to who does what there. Yeah. Um, not too sure. Can't think of anything else that's got those big plunges as much as what Porto Magello's got there. a couple of fairly significant yeah. downhill But drops. I was thinking that the main straightaway there being so long would kind of play to the Honda's hand of the horsepower thing. Yeah. But I think a front end feel for Le Mans is going to be really important too. So that'll be some, that'll be probably a good place to look at because we do have those off camber turns sort of somewhat similar to we have here at Porto Mayo. So good to see. In terms of front end feel and grip, let's not forget as well, the track was pretty green come Sunday morning because it had mm. been wet all weekend. So if you were struggling a little bit for grip and confidence, and that was definitely going to show itself up given that that was the first dry run that they'd had had. So hard to know, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Garcia would win. And then he would ride into the pits and promptly drop his bike. <laughs> I wondered if he might have got a bit of a ticking off for that, actually, because he was a little bit wild going in. I think he was trying to do a stoppie. He just messed it up. I think the carpet that they roll out in the Park Fermi area was still probably pretty wet. A so, damp. Yeah, yeah, that was the only sort of big crash of the weekend, really. <laughs> well, <laughs> I say that in Moto3, at least, anyway. He had crashed it three times in qualifying. I just go for broke and crash it in pit lane, which is funny. Then it- Masia Sasaki, Anchu Guevara to tie, and Mimio was the first Honda in seventh place. It was all six were all KTMs or KTM clone motorcycles, which was really interesting to me. Is there anything else, Motor 3, we may have missed we need to touch on? I don't well, think. only just I'm going to get mine in now because I know you're going to okay. be carping about it later. So I'm just going to do the, <laughs> the, the flag waving partisan bit whilst I can. And just a okay. great shout out for both. Well, Josh Watley, who's, I think, finding it quite a, you know, a baptism of fire, but he is only 16, so, uh, and he had a good qualifying, really showed his class in the leveller, which is the, the wet and the damp conditions, but Scott Ogden was absolutely sensational all weekend and was initially up in that front pack. He did drop back a little bit. Uh, I think he ended up finishing 13th, yep, I believe, true. but that is brilliant experience for him to be dicing up the very front of a Moto3 race like that. He looks like a really, really good prospect now, Scott Ogden. I mean, he's got a good pedigree, having come up through the other formulae but you know you still got to mix it when you arrive in Moto3 otherwise your history pretty quickly so he looks like the real package and the real deal to me so I just yeah feel the need to give him a shout out and good progress from Josh Watley from the other Brits point of view as well we should just also perhaps quickly add that John McPhee turned up for the mm. pre-race medical with his broken back and was not past fit so this is potentially signs that perhaps race direction and the medical direction are starting to take rider health and injuries and well-being a little bit more seriously 
seriously all of a sudden. Well, a lot more seriously in actual fact. So John was ruled out of Portimao and he's also benched for this weekend's Hereth race as well. So they clearly feel that he's not fit enough in terms of that injury stabilising to warrant the risk. So disappointing for John, but on the other hand, best not to put himself in serious harm's way. I applaud Race Reaction's decision on this. Me too. Yeah. I think it's long coming and I'm glad that they are taking a more serious tone with riders coming back from injury and making sure that they are fit. And uh, I do think that that's the best thing that can be done. I know there's contracts. I know that there's pressure for these guys to return and to ride, but I do think there needs to be a voice of reason that says, Hey, this is not worth the risk. Yeah. And we know that these guys will race. What was it? Max Mosley said once after all the troubles in 1994 formula one, something along the lines of if the drivers think they can get away with it, they will. It's, it's our job as regulators, to keep them safe so you can never leave it in the hands of the teams and the riders because they will always take the risk because there's so much at stake and so much pride and all the rest of it so you need strong governance and checks and balances in place and I will try and keep a mental note I won't mention it now but anecdotally there's an interesting addition to that when we get to the MotoGP guys so I'll try and remember to throw that in shortly I'll remind you of it okay let's go to Moto2 Oof. Okay. (laughs) so Moto2 on Saturday qualifying these guys had a dry track. It had dried enough that they were definitely going to go to slicks. Now, as a reference point for everyone, Moto GP ran in between in the qualifying sessions. The track was dry. It was all about slick tires. And this was the first time all weekend the Moto2 guys would hit the track with slicks. You just knew something was going to happen with that in qualifying. As it turned out from the first qualifying session, Ramirez, Arbolino, Navarro, and Van de Gerberd all went through from the first session to the second session, which I think was a good thing. Arbolino was maybe the surprise in there that he was actually in that session. Acosta did not get it together, and he was sixth in that session, showing that he still hasn't figured out exactly all of what's going on to that whole idea. We'll come on to Acosta. I got some questions about Acosta, so let's hold that till the end and we'll go from there. Okay. So that was the first qualifying session, and then we went to the Q2 session. And in that Q2 session, it was pretty much a burn burner, but Kinnett threw down a fast lap that got him to pole position. He was followed by Cam Bobier, the American. In fact, he actually stole pole off of Cam. The flag was out. <laughs> it was waving. I was really, really happy for Jake Dixon to have jumped up to third there with a great run. I thought he was going to nip Bobier and start second, but he did get to third. Arbolino showing that if you're in the first, it's really helpful when you don't have very much running to actually get up there. So he would be fourth, followed by Fernandez Lowe's. Ayagura just missed out. I think he got a lap canceled or something or got caught by the yellow flag somewhere in there. So he wound up seventh. Sean Catrantra, uh, ninth, then Joe Roberts, the other American, and Arenas in your top 10. So a lot of the former great Moto3 guys after a year of seasoning, i.e. Arenas, i.e. Tony Arbolino, are now showing that they are capable of riding. Kinnett in his third, second season, third season. Third, I think, at least, yeah. Third, yeah. Is now showing that he's got some pace and was on pole. So he, he was kind of carrying his form forward from Texas, as well as Arbolino and Bobier. So I love that everybody was kind of keeping that momentum going through qualifying. Then we get to Sunday. Again, Sunday is completely dry. Bobier gets the whole shot. And I was like, yes, all right, this is good. Because John Hopkins was saying he expected a win. It's going to be a win. Want nothing less than the wind. And I'm like, you know, 
you probably got a good shot at this time. Unlike Texas, where Bovier was just throwing down one lap pace, this was a consistent guy all weekend who was consistently quick. And by I mean, he was within the top three or four guys the whole time. Yeah. And I thought, man, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But if you've looked at what they put on the bikes in warm up in that quick 10 minute session, Bovier was again fast. So was that. So was Dixon. Although I was like, oh, this is a three rider battle potentially brewing among three guys that you really you root for either one of them connect because I want to know what the bow tie is about Bobier because I want an American to win and Dixon because I want a Brit to win. I think just Jake's story. He just deserves a win after everything that he's sort of been through. It was coming. It's coming, right? Just when is it going to be it there? Yeah. You just, you just want to will him on. But that's the same for all three of the guys you just mentioned. So yeah. Moto2 is really good this year, isn't it? And we it haven't said that for a while. Fabulous. Yes, that is true. We have not said how good Moto2 is. You know, generally these are the more boring races of the weekend. It's a little processional. Somebody sort of gets out and goes away. And yeah. you think, okay, how are we going to talk about this one for <laughs> 10, 15 minutes. There was no shortage of that when we got to the race. The race on Sunday, again, it was definitely dry. Very dark skies overhead. Very though. dark skies had showed up. That was the interesting thing. It was like, ooh, what's going to happen? But it broke out with Bobiana whole shot, Arbolino, Kinnett, Chancha right there, Ayagura, and Fernanda. No sooner than the race had started, we had drops of rain, and we saw in a few turns the waving flags that were denoting that there is rain. And as we went along, that's really scary conditions to be on a motorcycle with slicks in you just don't know how hard you can push you don't know how wet it is and this track doesn't really consume a lot of area it's twist back upon itself but it was very obvious at the beginning that the way that from where the rain was coming from that half of the track was getting drops of rain the other half of the track was not getting drops of rain and then as time passed we got every corner was showing a flag that hey it is raining when that got to that point i wondered to myself like why aren't these guys putting a hand up which is the signal that this is too much rain we need to stop go to wets or whatever it is that we're going to do but no one put a hand up so i'm like well maybe it's not as bad as what i think it is because some of the cameras are facing into the wind right so they're going to get more rain on the camera lenses than what potentially is on the bikes on board shots were showing a few drops on windscreens but not a whole lot but the front three can it bobby and Ayagura were out front and cruising. Those guys were setting a serious pace until they got the raindrops and they go through turn one to turn two and it looked like synchronized swimming high sides. Down went Canet, down went Bobier, down went Ayagura. Arbolino went down. Fernandez went down. Chantra went down. Lowe's went down. Aranis was down. Corsi was down. And Pedro Costa all went down at turn two. It was bowling for riders. One bike I don't remember whose bike bumped into whose, but I think it was Corsi's bike slammed into another bike, ruptured a fuel tank or a fuel line. It burnt to a crisp in there. We had to red flag the race. It was just pure chaos. It was over like nine bikes that were down in turn two. And again, I go back to like race direction didn't think to stop this. None of the guys thought to put a hand up. So I'm wondering, is there someone there to blame? Is this just racing? And this is the risk that we're willing to take to win. You know, and Canet tried so hard to hang on to that bike. He was side saddle through the gravel heading to three and he ran out of room and just said i got a bail and man i was really scared that Kinnett was hurting more than anybody else because the way he tumbled with his neck rolling into the gravel but everybody got back up and then we got to deal with the chaos of trying to restart 
Well, hang on, Jim. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Let's put a line in the sand there because there's already quite a lot to talk about. And this is obviously the main talking point of the whole weekend mm. for me. I think Race Direction were extraordinarily lucky not to have a fatality on Sunday. Mm. And I think serious questions now need to be asked on a couple of fronts. I'm riding a little bit on Simon Patterson's coattails on this one because I was listening to something that he was talking about on this earlier on, very much along the same lines that I'd already thought and written down, ready for this show in any way. But of course, he can articulate things in a very good way. But he made made the excellent excellent point which is that race direction use the riders as the gauge as to when the red flag should come out i.e they wait for somebody to crash now is that correct when a race starts in the dry there had been well that big crash happened on lap nine so let's say there were probably at least seven laps where the rain flags were out waving to warn the riders of damp conditions but of course the riders have got enough on their plate as it is just racing it's race direction who have got corner workers and marshals all around the circuit who can radio back in and no doubt we're doing so the fact that it was consistently drizzling it wasn't heavy rain quite clearly otherwise the riders would certainly have stopped and put their hands up but in this situation it's just so dangerous because it just takes a tiny little increase at one corner and we see what happened Uh, several questions come out of this really firstly should race direction have stop the race now i know we've we're all at the mercy of the tv schedules and i don't like to delay things and so on but this was the last race of the day Is it right for race direction to use the riders as a gauge like that? Personally, for me, they should have stopped the race and allowed people to come in and just either wait a little while to see what the conditions did or to allow people to change tyres and go out on wets. I mean, I don't really understand why none of the classes have access to intermediates. I'm sure they used to, or cut slicks, as they used to be referred. That's kind of outlawed now, and I wonder whether perhaps that's something that needs to be revisited. But my main question to you, Jim, and to all of the listeners, and I'd be very interested to see what people think about this, is given that we have one bike rules in Moto3 and Moto2, so you can't have a flag-to-flag like you have in MotoGP, for these kinds of occasions, which won't come up all that often, it's true, but when they do, and to avoid the sort of near disaster that could have happened on Sunday should we be looking at these bikes being able to quickly change wheels in the pits so that they kind of do have a flag to flag but they're not changing bikes they're just coming in and they have some quick fit like they do in endurance race and the ability to quickly whip the front and the rear wheel out and put a rain tired wheel in instead that's my question and then the riders have the choice because they don't have a choice at the moment they're reliant on race direction to red flag it or they crash and I don't think that's right yeah <laughs> This one for me, I blame the one bike rule. So to begin this rant, let's talk a little bit. Let's take this a little bit farther after the crash. After the crash, we're waiting around for the restart. We find out that anybody who had crashed has five minutes to get their bike back to the pits without the aid of a shortcut. So in other words, since this happened at turn two, you would have to proceed around the rest of the track, come into the pits, and then you have to fix that one bike. Now, the idea is that this is a savings point, right? The money that you save not having another motorcycle sitting there. Okay, who are we kidding, people? Every team there has got another Kalex chassis. They have another set of wheels. They have another Triumph. Well, they don't have the Triumph engine. Triumph would have to give them an engine per se, right? Yeah, true then this might be the whole holdup in it is the Triumph engine. But there's enough parts and pieces to build a whole nother motorcycle sitting there. So do we need to have quick change wheels on the bikes? I don't know. That's a cost unto itself. To me, I don't want to do that because I feel like you should just have another bike sitting there ready to go. It's fine to say that you can't use it unless there's a certain number of circumstances. The rules could be written and say, hey, after five laps, you cannot use your second motorcycle. No one's going to get mad about that. Hey, five laps were done, complete it, there's there. But hey, in the first lap and a big crash, at least you could get back to the pits, get your bike and get back out there. I don't see how it's saving the team's money because it's not like they're saving weight 
because they're all going to be transporting this much material. Yeah. It comes down to whether Triumph could produce instead of the 22 odd motors that they have to have, could they have 44 sitting there for the teams? Now, I don't know. Triumph may or may not want to do that. But it just seems to me like that in this case, this was just so wrong in the fact that they could not get these guys back, unfix them or get back out. Like Acosta's bike was not that badly damaged. Just he couldn't get it restarted. They worked very hard to get a restart. And he gets back at like six minutes after the red flag. Rule is a rule is a rule and it's in stone. But there was so many team managers talking to the Erta team, holding out the rule book. And you could get the idea from Akiyo's face. They're like, this is a bunch of BS. Well, in fact, it was a bunch of BS, Jim, because, and again, I don't have a copy of the yellow book, but again, having listened to what Simon Patterson was saying about this. So just to go back a little bit, this rule was introduced because I think some years ago in Moto2, Tom Luti had a crash. I think it was in Sepang, destroyed the bike, caused a red flag, but the delay in getting the race underway again was so extreme that during that time, I think he was able to get the bike back and they were able to fix it up enough for him to go out. So they introduced the five minute rule so that if you crashed of your own accord or stupidity or whatever maybe a couple of people crash into each other you know they can't come back and rejoin the race because they were the ones that caused the stoppage so i get that and so five minutes 10 minutes 15 minutes whatever five minutes is the time but apparently in 2019 the five minute rule was adjusted slightly to say that the race organizers had some discretion depending on the circumstances so i think yeah the rule's the rule but i think all the ferrari in the pits with everybody running around with their yellow books was trying to sort of make mike trimby and the other race officials give them a little bit of leeway on this one because it was wasn't the riders faults that they crashed it was race direction's fault that they crashed because the race should have been stopped and the only reason they crashed was because they were out on an unsafe track so i could quite understand the team's position which was uh, it wasn't our fault we crashed yes we're a few minutes late getting back to the pits you have some latitude within the rule now to give us a bit more time so please give us a bit more time and i simply don't understand why race direction didn't give them any more time because as it was the race got restarted with half the flipping field missing and particularly half the field not everybody could restart because their bikes were so seriously damaged they were never going to get them prepared but certainly the two it's never say the sponsor Indimitsu. yeah guys could have got back out i think at least i think arbolino could have got back out i think lowe's was injured aaron connect's got a broken arm and a broken hand by the way so they didn't get off scot-free they got off extraordinarily lightly but he's probably out for a race or two so the whole thing was just a mess and you know race direction and the organization and the rules kind of brought the sport into disrepute for me a little bit and it's so sad when that happens because most of this stuff is avoidable yeah, none of all of it makes sense. I mean, again, there has to be a way for force majeure, right? Mm. Look, hey, this this is one of these instances that is beyond everybody's control. It was clear day dry race, rain came, we are on slicks, we're not doing flag to flag here, it wasn't stopped. It only was stopped because we had not the front three guys all fall off simultaneously, but we had another seven guys come in there and crash as well. I would think you got to look at that and say, force majeure, if you can get the bike running again in a, you know, before we go to the quick restart method where you've got 60 seconds to get out of the pit lane, you can get back in there provided that the motorcycle is safe and it is technically rideable. That's the key point on that one to me is it has to be safe because Agura's bike was really beat up and they were got it back to where it was running basically, but it was missing some tail body work and stuff like that. I I don't believe that's a safe motorcycle at that point because the rain light isn't on, other things are missing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So there's some leeway there that I'll give you about it, but it just seemed so wrong to have so many guys not even go to start again. You're half the field's missing. Well, and you're denied a great race because well, if they had bikes, they would have got back on them and rode them. That's a consequence, isn't it? I don't have any objection to the five minute rule. I understand why it exists. If let's say Bobier and Canet had crashed into each other, taken each other out, caused a lot of damage to their bikes and caused the race to be red flagged and they couldn't get back in five minutes to get the bikes fixed and technically okay to restart. No problem, they're out of the race, but 10 or 11 riders, whatever it was, went down and many of them couldn't restart because the bikes were damaged. Okay, fair enough. And, but some of them did get back and could have quite happily restarted the race and race direction had it within their gift of discretion within that adjusted rule, as I understand it, to allow them in. And I just don't understand why they didn't, given that it was, as you say, Jim, quite correctly, a kind of force majeure kind of situation and not one of those riders could be responsible for crashing because it was entirely race direction's fault that they crashed because the race in my opinion should have been stopped prior to that happening on safety grounds alone and as i say there were some nasty injuries as a result of that we don't know quite what's happened with sam lowe's he looked in a lot of pain and as i say connect's got a busted arm and he was a championship favorite who's potentially not anymore so it was stupid I do think it would be very simple to write a rule into the rule book that says if the rain flag is being displayed at every corner on the track, or let's say three quarters of the turn on a track, that you stop the race. Yeah. It's not safe at that point. Yeah. I agree. That's a, that's a great. That, that's, it's a, it's, that's so simple. Sorry, Rich, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, you're absolutely (laughs) the best suggestion I've heard of everything that I've heard over the last couple of days. Yeah, why not do that? If it's three consecutive corners with potential damp conditions and it's a dry race and people are on slicks, stop the race. Simple. As riders, I think we... You know, when I was young, I had no fear. I would take that risk willingly. Only older now, other responsibilities, I don't take those risks. So I understand why the guys are going for it. But again, it goes back to what you said earlier. There has to be a a higher power that isn't looking at this from a commercial monetary existence. It has to look at it from a sustainability standpoint that you, we cannot keep having tragedies that we could potentially prevent if we would just take a minute and say, look, it's raining on three quarters of the circuit. Let's stop this and either wait 10 minutes or give everybody time to put wets on. Because if you declare it a wet race and you decide that you want to go on slicks, fairly or not, you've forced the decision to be made by the teams and the riders as to what tire of the choice they want to make yeah you know i could cope with the sort of the laissez-faire attitude of race direction over this particular example if they weren't docking people three spaces for being one millimeter on the green coming out of a corner on the last lap so they're over-regulating in certain areas and doing sod all in much more important areas in my opinion and that's just yeah it's unsustainable really as you say jim because people just get fed up with that kind of governance or lack of so yeah i feel really very strongly about this and i'm very interested to know what the listeners think about this and hopefully we'll get a few people emailing in or tweeting or whatever but because i think it's a really big issue and uh, it could have yeah as we've said i won't keep going on about it but it could have been so much worse but quite apart from anything else a directive needs to go out to riders and i was going to mention this in relation to polis bargro at the end of qualifying in moto gp but riders stood around in the gravel trap kind of looking at the scene is again not a good idea because the bike that came flying in that hit the other bike and burst into flames one of the riders and we're not sure who it was had to hop skip it pretty quick to avoid the fireball so i think the riders need to be told if you're fit and able you need to move quickly and get out of harm's way because <laughs> uh, several of them were just stood there surveying the scene whilst bikes were still careering in and we've seen that before as well it is easy to roll yourself into a gravel trap on a, in a situation where you don't think you did anything wrong and for whatever reason you will stop 
and want to think about that situation right where you are. Mm, I guess it's a shock kind of reaction or something. Yeah, but... I've done it. I've rolled myself into a gravel trap and stood there for 30 seconds and going like, what? This, I should not be here right now. Why am I here? Mm. And you you get the tug, you get the shoulder tap, you get something from a corner marshal worker. You're like, oh yeah, crap. There is a There are bikes coming. I need to move from this impact zone and worry about what happens later. So I've seen it. I've done it. I'm again. Yeah. You can tell guys that it's still going to happen, but that's one of those things where it's tricky because if the corner marshals or workers are out there and there's other bikes coming, they're not too willing to keep going because everybody's falling off now and we can't have them in any more danger than what they are. Somebody would have a bullhorn yelling, you know, clear the scene, clear the scene, or let's try to finish the race here. Yes. Yeah, rant over. We well, they were good rants. I mean, this For is now. All... <laughs> well, there's foreshadowing, people. As we got back to the grid and they lined back up, it was Dixon, Roberts, Outiger, Vietti, and Schroeder on the first row. They took off. Roberts got a whole shot, and let's face it, Roberts ran away with it. At that point, nobody was there who was going to touch him at all. Dixon fell at turn seven. I really thought I was. So so hoping for a Dixon v. Roberts battle, and it didn't happen. Mm. Poor Jake went down at turn seven on the very first lap. Roberts had like over a three-second lead over everybody. Vietti somehow clawed himself up through what little of a pack that there was and somehow rode his way up to a second-place finish in this race behind Roberts. Navarro was then third. Schroeder was fourth. Gonzalez, Alcoba, Outiger, uh, Boban Schneider, Baltus, Rodrigo, and Fanade. Again, not the results that you're expecting out of this one. I will say this about Joe Roberts. Incredible that Joe Roberts won. Luck is a big part of motorsport. To finish first, first you must finish. Let me be very clear. Roberts had no chance of winning that race if that race ran flag to flag. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Did Cambobier have a chance at winning that race flag to flag? Yes. Was he going to? Maybe not. Kinnett was definitely one of the fastest guys all week and was probably deserving of the victory. Now he's got a broken arm and a hand. So the fanboy in me, yep, First time anybody's won an intermediate class since 1990, John Kaczynski, Phillip Island. Absolutely fantastic. Wow. It yeah. was fantastic to see the flag at the top for me. It was fantastic to hear the national anthem again. And it was the first time an American had won, period, since 2011, Ben Spees yep. at, I believe, Valencia, I think. Mm. Somewhere. I remember it's 2011. I don't remember where whether it was Valencia or not. But incredible scenes for Joe Roberts. Incredibly happy for Joe Roberts. I'm not going to take this victory away from him. Oh, he, he still had to he ride it. seven strong laps or whatever the race restart race distance was. Right. And he did brilliantly well. I mean, Dixon, as you say, unfortunately, just was a little bit wide into whichever turn that was. First lap, cold tires. Just, yeah. Lost it. Ah, it's just one of those, unfortunately. And it, it was a shame because they probably would have had quite a good scrap, those two up front, because they were so far ahead after half a lap. But delighted for Joe Roberts. As you say, Jim, you've got to be in the right place at the right time and make the most of it. And he could have very easily fallen off. Uh, I just want to say a great big shout out, actually, in terms of his attitude and how sort of magnanimous he was over the whole situation when interviewed. Cambodia, I thought was exceptional in his viewpoint. You know, he was saying simply, I'm just glad everybody's okay. I mean, he could have started ranting and raving like I've been doing, but no, he chose diplomacy and uh, dignity as the best way forward in that scenario when most people would have had a right old uh, slanging match about how bad their luck had been. So no, I was really impressed with his response. Yep. I feel sorry for Dixon. I think his time is coming. I, I think there's oh, yeah. one coming yeah. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, not sure where, but it's coming. It's close. It's, it's right there. Just like I think cam is right there it's just it might take a little bit of luck to get there it did shake the championship up 
Um, well, I mean, Vietti. Big time. Oh, I mean, just extraordinarily lucky for him, really. That Not lucky mm-hmm. that he didn't crash because Dixon didn't crash. You know, a bunch of people didn't crash. And whether that was luck or judgment or just whatever, it's it's hard to know when other people were skittling around them. But Vietti staying up and then race direction choosing to handle things in the way that they did sort of guaranteed him a massive points all because everybody that went down was his nearest challenger in the championship. Yep, Vietti still is on top at 90 points. Agura is now second with 56. Arlino at 54. Joe Roberts jumps up, I think, five places mm. to be at 49. Then Chantra, Navarro, Schroeder, and Lowe's with Dixon rounding out the top 10. If you didn't have Vietti, you have a very close battle between, uh, you know, Agura, Arlino, and Roberts for a world title. So sad to see that happen that way. Happy that it was a win for an American, but uh, yeah, under circumstances. And, you know, nobody really ever remembers a little asterisk that's going be attached to this <laughs> right like five years from now you're gonna be like yeah robert's won in port of mile and you're all gonna be happy right yeah yeah no one remembers that nikki hayden won because valentino rossi fell off it is no nikki hayden won a world championship and yeah. you, just, you have to be there to win it and that's what he was yeah fair play to him and you know it's a long way to go in the championship yeah i mean we're only five races in so i mean there's a mm-hmm. hell of a lot of races still to come so it's Boy. not over for anybody but vietti does have a pretty handy lead as things stand just right now but we'll see how things go in the next few races okay let's talk talk about the interesting case of one Pedro Acosta. Oh yeah. This was the kid that came in, dominated Moto3, won a Moto3 world championship. Granted, he did slide backwards a little bit. Foggia did give him a run for his money. He still won the championship, dominated, was the man that was there. Was a guy who was the fastest Moto2 guy at Porto Mayo in the final test. And yet this kid has not done anything on that motorcycle. Is it strictly just bad luck? Well, it rained in Mandalika. They had problems with the bikes not getting there at Argentina. Uh, yeah, at Coda, he fell one of the laps when on a track that he's not had a lot of luck with. I'm not sure what's wrong with this. He's on arguably the best Moto2 team. And yet he's, is it just that the Moto2 bike is just that different or is it bad racing luck that he hasn't been able to actually get to where he needed to be because he's passed underneath the yellow flags and been penalized as fast as lap debating qualify in the front two rows, something like that. What do you think it is? Because I'm at a loss. I think it's a little bit of all of those things, to be honest, Jim. I think expectations are way too high. I think he's pushing the limits. And at the moment, he's crashing quite a lot as a result of that. But hopefully he's going to learn. I mean, if you compare him to, say, Lorenzo Della Porta, he, well, he's doing much better than him. And that's a Moto3 world champion who's been in Moto2 for, what, two seasons now? I think mm. this is his third season. Okay, even more to my point then, really. So I think he's just adapting a bit slower. We should never, as we always say, and we did say it at the time, never read too much into testing because you never know if anybody else is holding back. So I just think it's a combination of lots of different things. And I'm not actually sure I completely agree that he hasn't really had a good season so far. I mean, he's had a bit of bad luck, I think. And in the races where he stayed on, and I'm thinking particularly Qatar at the beginning of the season where he got punted out wide and was last at the end of the first corner uh, in Indonesia, had a pretty strong race coming from quite far back he's he's not figured out single lap pace that's his problem I think if he was on the first two rows we'd be probably having a bit of a different conversation uh, and this is something we talk about in MotoGP with a lot of riders consistently isn't it is that they just cannot qualify uh, and once they do things turn around for them in the races so I think he's had some pretty strong rides in races but he's just crashing a bit too much and not qualifying well enough I think that's his major problem but I think in the last show or the show before we kind of said in some respects this kind of guarantees that he's not going to get this stupid move straight up to MotoGP at his age. He'll be in Moto2 again next year and I would expect big things of him next year, not this. That's really my takeaway as things stand at the minute. The only reason I make this comment is the fact that you have Ayagura 
who looks like he's been riding a Moto2 bike forever, and he was running around with them in Moto3 last year. And it's just... True. Some people just make that transition, don't they? Exactly. For whatever reason. And that's just, who knows, it's fear, it's just confidence, it's all manner of intangibles, isn't it? Yeah, it goes to show that just because you, you know, set the world on fire at one point in time, you're not doing it now. But yeah, the strange case of Pedro Costa will continue to be talked about throughout this year, for sure. Yeah. Okay, Rich, let's move on to MotoGP. Yeah. As we know, the rain affected everything over the weekend, and MotoGP goes out for free practice four right after Moto3 qualifying. So the track was still very wet. Everybody went out in FP3 with full wets on. It did start to dry. There was a drying line developing there at the end. Nobody was brave enough to try slicks, but you kind of knew going into QP1, somebody was going to try the slick option. We just didn't know who it was going to be, but somebody was going to go that way. Amazingly, you had Jorge Martin in this first qualifying session. You had Benyaya in it and you had Bastianini in it as well. Those guys, you wouldn't have expected to be there. Such was the chaos that had been created by the rain that the three guys who were at the predominantly amazingly fast were in this first session. As it turned out, everybody kind of went out on wets to start the session and Alex Marquez was quick on the wets. Vinales was quick on wets because uh, he was in there as well. Nakagami was fast on wets, but then Nakagami decided to go to slicks. Now, Benyaya had never gone out. His bike was sitting in the pits with slicks, and he was seemingly waiting to put in one lap at the end. The problem was that there was a dry line, but there were rivers across turn one. The high-speed turn nine were very wet, and it just seemed like it was going to be an incredible risk for anyone who tried it. Nakagami was the first guy to go on slicks. He barely made it around, came back, put it on the stand, and said, nope, we're going back to wets. Marquez had then gone quickest at that point then other people tried the slick option remy had a bad high side he tried the slick option and it went away from him most notably of all benyaya went out and i don't know why he never went out on wets you could have took one bike gone on wets decided what you wanted to do and had the other bike waiting your a bike if you will waiting on slicks he never did he simply took the a bike and went out and promptly tossed it away and he looked like he had hurt himself significantly it looked like a collarbone, didn't it, initially? Yeah. The way, just the way he landed, that's the sort of break a collarbone kind of crash that nobody wants to see. I first thought that he had maybe broken his wrist. His right arm tucked underneath him as he crashed. And I thought maybe he had broken his wrist because he kind of picked it up because he had went, when he rolled, and rolled back over, he put his hand down. I thought maybe he had broken it there because then he immediately collapsed onto like his elbow and his shoulder. Mm. But then as he was being treated at the side of the track, he was very much concerned about his shoulder, collarbone, that kind of a thing. He would be declared fit for the race on Sunday, but that was the end of qualifying for for him. And I even think Bastianini even fell or at least ran off on slicks. Yeah. But eventually Martin put it together to get a fast lap. And I think he did that on wet. Alex Marquez came back in and threw on slicks at the very end and it was like oh maybe he just timed this one just right and he did and he took the first position in QP1 followed by Luca Marini, Martin Vinales and DG Antonio so only Marquez and Marini would go through to qualifying too 
qualifying two starts out everybody realizes that the slick is the way to go so everyone goes on a slick to start it's pretty much up and down all around and it's pretty crazy session as to who's there because the track is getting faster every single lap that's being laid down and it depended on where you were going to be at the end and where you were in this time sequence near the very end mark marquez is on an absolute flyer of a lap the guy who seems to be the man in a tricky kind of conditions let's go to slicks and be faster than anyone on wets kind of guy had a flyer going only to see that lap scrubbed by a fall by his own teammate polis bargero now marquez's time that he put up was going to be beaten later on by a couple other guys but he would have started on the second row as opposed to where he wound up actually falling back to starting ninth like he did at coda but everybody was clicking it off right at the end everyone had a shot at it quattro came through i think next somehow he avoided all the yellow flags to post the time that was quick, but it was only going to become fifth quick because he was then surpassed by Miller, who was then surpassed by a Alacious Berger, who was then passed by Juan Mir, who was on an absolute flyer lap. I thought Mir had this one because he looked in control. He looked fast. I thought, okay, that's it. There's nobody else that's going to be there. And actually, the commentating team really didn't have a clue who was really hauling, but that man was Johan Zarco. Yeah. And Johan Zarco put in an amazing lap to actually be on pole to start the race. It really was one of those sessions where the clever riders delayed going out for a little while and then just hammered around because it was quite clear that the track evolution in terms of drying out was better than the tyre degradation from staying out on that tyre for say six, seven or eight laps so I think Zarco played an absolute blinder there mm. and we know he's quick on a single lap but it's, it was an extraordinary session really because you could just see the track getting better and better and better but just on the Polar Spargo thing that goes back a little bit to what we were talking about in the Moto2 race with people who have crashed just sort of hanging around feelings in his particular case feeling a bit sorry for himself and having a what happened moment and really should have been up on his feet and walking away a bit quicker than that and did obviously because of the yellow flags ruin several laps including his teammates so I suspect he wasn't particularly popular when he got back into the pit box I don't know if those two actually get along anyway I don't get the impression that there's an awful mm-hmm. lot of interaction there particularly as Paul came in and took his brother's slot in that team if you remember mm-hmm. Alex was in the team for yeah. one season and then they ditched him back to LCR and put Paul in instead so yeah probably not a lot of love lost even before <laughs> even before the the qualifying incident. Yeah, I I think it's cordial and that's about it. Mm. (laughs) You know, hi, how you doing? Get the hell away from me kind of a thing. Yeah. I'm beginning to wonder if that team dynamic is starting to weigh in, especially with the new bike. So speaking of Marquez, since we're here, he did have a crash in, was it FP2? Or was it FP3 that morning? I'm not sure which one he high-sided himself on. Yeah, he had a, quite a nasty little bit like he was having in Indonesia, if you remember, where the rear just kind of kept letting go on him. So in the ordinary scheme of things, you'd say, well, it's just a Mark Marquez crash and no big deal. But every crash, you kind of look at it now and think, oh dear, what's the implication of that? And he did come down pretty heavily head first. The reason I wanted to, well, remember Jim, from me mentioning this earlier on, the reason I just wanted to pick up on this again was really to do with the medical interventions and the steps that have been taken now quite rightly and not before time it must be said to safeguard these riders a little bit so again one of the commentators that I listened to afterwards was saying that arriving back at the pit Marquez was questioned quite heavily by the medical teams to ascertain did he know where he was did he know what day it was you know etc basic information but was there any sign of a concussion there whereas in the past riders would just come back to the pit box jump on a bike and go out again so this does just 
highlight the fact that there is a dose of reality starting to drop in in certain aspects of the sport towards rider safety not just the safety of the rider in question but the safety of all the other riders that are out on track as well because you know if you've got a concussion then you're not just a danger to yourself you're a danger to everybody else so yeah I just wanted to drop that in and mention that because I'd heard that and I think that's a real positive step in the right direction yeah again this is all good stuff this is all moving the sport towards a better place which is what you want I mean I love the fact that these guys are warriors and will ride through pain but there is a point there's a very different point between riding with a broken bone in a wrist or a foot or something to that nature and dealing with a concussion which is your brain which is where what drives and makes all your thought processes work properly yeah and if you're not a hundred percent mentally on a motorcycle at those speeds that is a danger to you and to the others that are around you and there has to be a line drawn and it sounds like the sport is trying to find where that line is and I, I applaud their move in this yeah and you know we were talking about corner workers and marshals earlier on those guys get put in harm's way if people crash that shouldn't even be out on track you know so it's not just about the riders even there's all sorts of people that are putting themselves in positions of danger throughout a race weekend so yeah just good to see that this is issue which is let's be honest if you take a sport like American football for example concussion protocols etc very very stringent indeed I believe nowadays unlike they were in the past so MotoGP has taken a long time to get on program with this one, but it does at least seem to be the case now, particularly with the outcry, if you recall, Raul Fernandez being allowed out at the, was it the Indonesia test, I think, having suffered a huge crash the day before uh, and was clearly concussed and went out and immediately crashed again because he didn't really know where he was. So I think that was a bit of a wake-up call. So it does seem that it's been taken a bit more seriously now. And perhaps one positive aspect of this recurrent diplopia that uh, Marquez is suffering is that it shines a light on the fact that if you whack your head often enough, there are implications to this. And oh, somebody in a position of power without sort of vested interest in terms of point scoring and championship position has to step in and be the safeguard to protect the riders from themselves. So good to see that that's happening. Mm, yep. So notably, Zarko would be on pole. Mir, Spargaro, Aleish, that is. Miller, Quattraro, Bezeki, Marquez, Marini. Then Mark would be ninth. Then his teammate pole would start right next to him. Evil justice for that one. And then you went down to the fact that, you know, Ren's never made it out of like Q1 because I think he had a crash. I think it was just a case of he was always on the wrong tire at the wrong time and just yeah, never managed yeah, to get yeah. a lap mm-hmm. together. And perhaps he was being a little bit cautious given how sketchy the conditions were. But 23rd, in terms of the Saturday outcome, things will change the following day, we'll get to. But 23rd was a pretty outrageously bad outcome for him given where his teammate was. Right, there's the shock. There was a real disparity between where the Suzuki's were because everybody was sort of close to each other. I mean, the, the KTM's were together in qualifying as well. You know, they were 11th and 12th. So I kind of expected big things out of Oliveira having won there uh, in you know his home track. So it was all to play for on Sunday morning. Yeah, woke on Sunday morning to dry track. Okay, this is going to be good. But we also awoke to the rumor that. Jack Miller was in talks with LCR Honda. How much truth is there to this one? And I mean, there's obviously some truth because no one would be talking about it if there wasn't something happening. Obviously, Miller stopped by the trailer. My question to you is, why is Miller looking there? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, as you say, Jim, I mean, usually no smoke without a bit of fire, is there? So it's quite possible that his management are just making inquiries all up and down the pit lane. You would expect them to do that. I mean, that's kind of their job, isn't it? So it doesn't take much to get a rumour going. But I mean, Miller rode for that team before. He probably, with his style and the characteristics of the Honda, he probably would be a pretty good fit on that bike. And we've speculated on numerous occasions recently that possibly both of those LCR seats are up for grabs. Now, we're pretty sure we know the destination of one 
one of those bikes in terms of somebody coming up from Moto2, or at least one of a couple of likely candidates coming up from Moto2. Odd that suddenly Alex Marquez puts in a performance over the course of the weekend, isn't it, with that rumour coming out? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and but he's still, I mean, one race is not going to save his MotoGP career. So Alex Marquez is going to need to be doing this race in, race out if he wants to retain that seat because he's not really done very well on since he's been at LCR. The odd occasion where he's, he's shown really good, and this weekend was a good example of that, but the consistency isn't there. So would Miller fit the bike? I think he probably would, but do I think it's going to happen? No, I don't. I think he's more likely to end up somewhere else if he were to drop out of Ducati. But there is also some quotes coming up on screen, which you probably saw from David Tardotze saying that, you know, they want to keep Miller however they didn't say they wanted to keep him in the works team so it's a question whether he would drop down to Pramac I think Miller has come out and said that that wouldn't bother him if he was on up-to-date machinery I think he's a fairly pragmatic Aussie let's be honest so Pramac and he was happy there before but whether he would drop down to sort of Grassini which is probably a tier two team in terms of equipment and support anyway I think that is a bit more of a stretch so faced with that prospect I think he might well be looking at other bikes, other options, other teams. So, and I could even see him ending up at somewhere like Tech 3 because I think that would be a good fit as well in terms of his riding style and the fact that I think there's one person in the Tech 3 team that doesn't necessarily look as if he really wants to be there or have much of a long-term future there. He certainly has a future in MotoGP, but probably not on a KTM. So we'll get to that in terms of our 2023 contract speculation in the show or two's time, hopefully. So yeah, it's an interesting one with Miller, but I think Sunday would go on to prove that he's on a bit of a tight wire with Ducati at the moment. Yeah, it seems strange. Uh, yeah, the Ducati is going to run into the problem that there are too many good riders and not enough good bikes. I think MotoGP has that problem in general, Jim, really. You know what? I think you're very right about that. I think you can look at Moto2 and say, that, hey, there's three, maybe four guys that deserve, based on talent alone, a MotoGP bike. And there isn't a team or spaces available. And there's nowhere to go. And... I would add to that, and I know we had this discussion several shows ago, I think there's a very compelling case for the need for at least two more teams in the MotoGP paddock. If you look at a couple of the manufacturers who are now right at the top of their game, and I'm thinking particularly of Aprilia and Suzuki, who really could do with having a satellite team. And even Aprilia have been making noises about the fact that they would like to have one or are in a position to supply bikes to a satellite team if there was a candidate. But which team is that going to be? You know, you, you do need a couple more teams on the grid, but that's a huge logistical challenge to the sport. But you can certainly see that there are bikes that people would want to ride and certainly several riders not just for Moto2 I mean there's a couple of riders that could do a coming across from World Superbike or British Superbike for that matter true who could easily perform in MotoGP but yeah it's just lack of seats now isn't it so it's uh, I mean it's a good position to be in but it's a bit frustrating at the same time yeah I would love to see a Suzuki satellite team and I would go with either another KTM satellite team or Aprilia having a satellite team where the satellite team for Aprilia receives year old bikes yeah you know I don't think there's anything wrong with that no no, no. And I don't think anybody would be too grumpy about sitting on a 22 Aprilia next year, because as, as we're going to go on and say, that bike is performing everywhere now. Uh, well, yes, certainly in, in Aspargro's hands it is anyway. So there's a compelling case that somebody would probably want to be riding that bike next year, even if it was a year old. That is true. So let's get to the race. Yeah. As the light turned green, Rins had the most amazing hole shot. 
he went from absolutely 23rd on the grid to be 10th by the end of the first lap. And they actually had an isolated camera on Renz. Um, it's on the MotoGP website. It's actually a free to watch video. Go find it. It is a great first lap ridden by Renz to be 10th, which was absolutely shocking that that man was that far up that quick. It was a great ride. Kind of shades of Mark Marquez at Valencia in Moto2 a few years back. If you remember, he got a penalty, was put to the back of the grid and was virtually in the top three or something crazy by the end of the first lap. Just unreal. But yeah, great lap by Rins and really made up for all of the disappointment from Saturday. Yes. Mir had got the whole shot. He was followed by Quattro, who had another very good start to come from fifth. Then it was Miller and Alex Marquez and Zarco went backwards. He couldn't get the Ducati off of the line. It was down to see what was going to happen with Quattro. He was close to the front. He was now second. The question was, could he get by Mir? And those two guys, they're each other's biggest rival, right? Because they've, they've been through this for two years where they've basically battled each other. So it was fun to watch these guys go after each other. Quattro did go by Mir, though it was not of foredrawn conclusion. It was definitely, you could tell Quattraro was fast. He had it together and he now was out front. So there was nothing that was going to happen to him if he's out front. The problems of the Yamaha with the overheating front tire and the tire pressure problem and whatnot were now not going to be an issue because he'd made his way to the front within two or three laps. And it was like, okay, is anybody going to be able to catch Quattraro? Now, Martin crashed and he did it in the same corner that broke his hand and three other bones in another tumble through the gravel trap that had me hold my breath to be sure that uh, Jorge would get back up. He did. He was fine. That boy in Puerto Mayo do not get along at all. No. Very sad to see that part of it. Quattro had developed a one and a half second lead and it didn't look like anybody was going to get him at this point because now it was metronomic. It was shades of Lorenzo on Yamaha circa 2015. Bastianini fell, which was a blow to his championship challenge that he had actually went down. And then Zarco started flying up through the field. He started coming on. He then went by Mir and he then Mir got back by. They had a tussle that was back and forth, but then Miller shows up because he has been coming on too. Now Miller goes into turn one with Mir, leaves it late because those two are the latest breakers that there are on the circuit. And he tucks the front, Miller does, slides into Mir, and both of them go and exit stage left into the gravel trap. Miller and Mir have several come-togethers, let's be nice, and they do not like each other, I think it's safe to say. I, I think each of them blames each other for the problems that they have had. Mm. Now, as they rolled to the gravel trap and tumbled, Mir got up and gave it that sort of sarcastic sort of clapping thing, like, you know, way to go, good job. Yeah. Only to realize that Miller was still down. Down, and his demeanor instantaneously changed. It was now a matter of concern that a competitor had in his shoe, to which he then was able to go over and find out that Jack was okay. And then he kind of went on about his way. Then Jack, having now gone through some medical checks there quickly, walked over and did the right thing, told him he was, you know, my fault. I own that one. It happens. He also, I think, went to the pits afterwards, he said did, the yeah. same thing to him, yeah. which was another good show of sportsmanship. I would expect nothing less from an Aussie. I expect nothing less from all these guys to be quite mm. honest with you and then you know in the post race you know discussions about it jack fully admitted it was him that it was a fault it was a racing thing race direction said nope we're not even going to look at this one it is a racing incident it was completely two guys were going for it and one of them went over the edge it collected the other one the only thing i didn't quite like was mir made the comment like oh i've done it before and it's a racing thing but i expect jack to learn from it 
But that was a bit cheeky there at the end. I, I expect Jack to learn from this. Hmm. Let's go back and think about what you what you've done several yeah. times. It's pots pots and a... kettles. Yeah. <laughs> you, you usually, you know, throwing stones in glass houses, isn't it? But oh, although Jack does have a bit of a tendency to chuck it up the road, and as you say, him and Mir have a bit of past form for one reason or another. I mean, like you, I think Mir's initial reaction with the sarcastic clapping was somewhat understandable. But as we were talking about with Cambodia earlier on, ultimately, I think both them conducted themselves thereafter with a lot of dignity i mean we've seen riders in the past who've been taken out they'll just kind of walk away and couldn't give two hoots they're like yeah good good for you dumbass you, you know you caused the crash i don't care so you do see that quite regularly in various forms of motorsport but in this particular case yeah as you say me realizing that jack was down and possibly a bit hurt did go over and thereafter things seemed to be somewhat cordial apart from the odd barbed comment but i guess that's just inevitable really but the thing that really shocked me was the fact that you had a ducati getting past the Suzuki on or trying to get past on the brakes not just blasting it on the power on the straight you know so and, and Jack was as you say he was one of the last of the late breakers anyway really struggling to get past that Suzuki I'm kind of surprised given recent decisions and or maybe I shouldn't be surprised because we often call out a kind of lack of consistency I mean I think it was right that he didn't get a penalty for it you know because for me that was just a racing incident but in many cases previously he would be getting a penalty for crashing and taking another rider out so it does seem a, a slightly odd decision given past rulings by race direction but that's not to say that I think he should get a penalty because I don't because I think when they're racing hard that's the kind of thing that will happen from time to time and Mir's done it to people in the past as well so these things have a habit of evening themselves out over time but yeah you can call into question again the over-regulation and over-governance of the sport with regards to penalties like that and say well why didn't he get a penalty this time because he did clearly crash and take Mir out of what was he in second place at the time or third place perhaps but yeah third because Zarko had gotten by right okay so that was quite a big points loss from Mia's point of view. So yeah, a, a curious outcome, albeit one that I would agree with. I will differ with you slightly. I think race direction has been fairly consistent this year. If you're halfway up another guy's bike or even with them, they've declared to be racing incidents. If you are, say, not only a quarter of the way there and your your front tire is only to their rear tire, they have penalized. The exception to that would have been Argentina with Mino and um, Masia, I believe, in Moto3. Mm. But other than that, they right. have been fairly consistent about, look, you two were side by side. That's a racing incident. He has as much right to that track as you do at that time. And he just left it late and folded the front and you were on the outside of him. You could have backed off earlier and cut back under for the undercut. So we'll see how it goes. We'll take a watch on it and see if that is consistent throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Quattraro is gone. It's over. Zarco is second. The race becomes who's going to finish out the podium. And we had Aleish on the Aprilia just absolutely coming like a freight train here over the last, say, six to seven laps to eventually ride up to the podium and... I don't know if he had the hurry up going before, but he certainly had the hurry up going once Renz appeared. Now, Renz, had, you know, again, he was 10th after the first lap. He spent a fair amount of time juggling around trying to get through the Alex Marquez, Mark Marquez battle that ensued between the two of them for where they were. It was definitely interesting that it took him that long to kind of get through that little disaster but once he finally did you know he was able to get going again and get there Aleish would beat Rins to the podium so Aleish with another podium I think that's what two three podiums so far this year for Aleish on the Aprilia 
And importantly, now Aprilia are one podium away from losing their concessions. Correct. Concessions are now an issue because they won't be getting any. I don't think anybody is going to have any concessions once Aprilia lose theirs, if and when they get the next podium, which could well be this weekend. So could be. Does you know? It does call into question: Do they need to tweak the concessions rules a little bit, or maybe they've always just arrived at the point where everybody is competitive and the concessions aren't required anymore? So I guess that was the whole point of that system but uh, mm-hmm. it becomes effectively redundant fairly shortly for a period of time, at least. Yep, I agree. It's something we might have to have a little discussion on that one when we do the 2023 writer review. Yeah, yeah. Did, what, what about concessions? Because that would all play into it as well. So let's kind of put that one into another show. Oh, there's always something to talk about with MotoGP, isn't there, Rich? Oh, yeah. Oh. So uh, let's see, where was I? Uh, Rins then would go to fourth, and Oliveira would round out the top five. Marquez would finish sixth, followed by, that would be Mark followed by his brother Alex in one of his better rides. Again, speculation that Miller goes to LCR Honda, and suddenly Alex is where he should be, kind of in that top 10 all the time, and being at least looking competitive. Benyaya, who rode Herc, uh, would finish seventh, or finish eighth, sorry. Pole would be ninth, and then Vinales would finish off 10th. Shout out to Divisioso on the Yamaha. He was able to get to 11th. That's the best finish he's had since his, call it a comeback, I guess, or return. I think it's probably a better word, his return to MotoGP. So that all in itself was interesting. Honorable mention for Remy Gardner as well, who came in, I think, 14th and was best rookie. So another good performance from Remy. And I think he's shading things in the Tech 3 squad. Fernandez didn't actually start the race, did he? Uh, he no. got injured at some point, and I must admit, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I don't quite know what happened to him and why he was ruled unfit for the race. I don't know if you know on that one, Jim. I but... have not seen it. He, he didn't appear on the radar at all anywhere. I don't no. even think he took place in qualifying. So I'm not quite sure what that was all about. But anyway, irrespective of that, I think Gardner's more than held his own in that team, and is still riding pretty badly injured with that wrist problem that he's got, uh, which I'm sure is holding him back. So whether this is more to do with the fact that Remy just is a better MotoGP rider on the KTM than Fernandez or if Fernandez is still not very happy to be on a KTM and we'll end up somewhere else next year which I'm inclined to think is quite likely to be the case hard to say but I think Fernandez is underperforming and disappointing a lot of people who really thought he was going to really you know make some surprises this year and so far that hasn't happened but still early days obviously he's a rookie and it's only the fifth race so plenty of time to me the only person that's actually making a surprise is Alation the Aprilia and they're making a huge splash and it's almost now commonplace that you expect him to be fighting for the podium with that machine. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think in terms of the rookies, I think Bezeki is doing a superb job on, on, the, on that. the Mooney VR46 Ducati. I think, you know, he's ha- had a lot of very strong performances, but uh, I'm not a big fan of Fernandez. I mean, I don't think that's going to come as any surprise, but so far, all the promise hasn't really materialised, has it? You know who he kind of reminds me of a little bit? is Anthony Gobert. Immense talent. Just hmm. absolutely sublimely talented, but yet so messed up in deciding who he wants to ride for or what he doesn't like or likes about a bike and just causes this off-track problem. Hmm. There's a negativity that yeah, sort of seems it, to orbit around him and his camp and team. I think I, I don't think it's particularly contentious to say that. I think this is well known yeah. and well reported that there's a lot of spats that go on and a lot of toys that get thrown out of the pram uh, with his younger brother as well. I don't know if he's got a huge entourage or if there's the soccer line father, you know, in the back of the garage. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. But no, there's a just a, just a general kind of slightly or sort of acidic kind of 
of atmosphere that seems to revolve around that whole setup at the moment. Uh, and obviously it's backed by the fact that he made it perfectly plain last year when he got one of the best bikes in the world to ride. That His initial reaction was, oh, I don't want to be on that. I want to be on a Yamaha. So, you know, I think that one is yet to play out. Yeah. Talented kid, just either. Oh, in, insanely talented, insanely talented. And, you know, we want to see him up the front and behaving himself and really sort of making good on all that promise. But so far, yeah, something's not right. Uh, yeah. And I think a change is likely to occur. You know, maybe he's a little like John Kaczynski. Mm. Well, I, I thought that's what you were going to say, actually. Sort of a, yeah, an unbelievable talent, it. but very, very unpredictable and perhaps a little bit strange in some of the ways. I mean, I know Kaczynski had some very, very sort of strange behaviours you know oh, off yeah. the bike let's not say any more than that but um, <laughs> <laughs> and even say Lorenzo you know in his pomp was quite a divisive character in a way I know there was that whole rivalry and sort of thing going on with Rossi and the pit wall dividing wall came up and you know but he was quite a sort of arrogant character that was kind of his persona I think possibly a lot of that was on purpose you know to create that kind of aura and so on but it was a very much a sort of a love it or hate it kind of way of going about his business and some people loved Lorenzo and some people just could not stand the way he sort of went about things, you know, and Fernandez sort of feels a little bit like that to me. But yeah, we'll see how things go. Mm. Let's talk about the big elephant in the room. The fact that Quattraro won. Yeah. Now I said on this show that I did not think the Yamaha was good enough to win a race this year. That shows you what I know, which is absolutely nothing. Shows how good MotoGP is, doesn't it? But a surprise like that happens. I've got a theory, Jim, and I wanted to put this past you. So it's okay. one of my sort of talking points. Do you think that in this specific situation, the fact that the Yamaha is effectively unchanged and undeveloped to a large degree, let's say from last year, and the mm. fact that many of the other bikes are new or significantly developed from last year and the fact that the only dry running they had was on Sunday do you think that basically favoured the Yamaha massively because they could bolt in the settings that they knew and everybody else was chasing setup all weekend partially I think the new Michelins throw a curveball at everybody and without dry time to know what you wanted Yamaha being the easier bike to ride and it seems to be easier on tires was quicker to find the sweet spot required to go fast on a dry Michelin so you I think there is something to what you're saying is it a whole lot no these guys are professional teams but the margin in MotoGP is so small that just that little bit is enough to get you somewhere else that you didn't think you would be it kind of like uh with Aleish winning in argentina they rolled off the truck or pulled the bike out of the box if you will and they were instantly fast right from everybody else and that little advantage of being that quick early on led them to a good qualifying which led them to a good race which led them to their first victory and i think the same thing sort of happened in with yamaha just because of the rain hey we now got to put a dry setup on here this is what we have ran in the past with this bike and now we can quickly get through we know that this is close we just need to quickly refine maybe some rebound a little bit of dampening on the back and maybe tweak some compression in the forks just to make it work with what we have on and we're good to go but all power to Yamaha they have done great Quattraro rode a fantastic race I will not doubt the immense talent that is Fabio Quattraro I think it's a shame that Yamaha didn't have a better bike at some of the races but again if he can qualify well if they can find the sweet spot quickly and if he can get to the front he's going to be a danger to win and he yeah. might be a danger to win this championship as well because this race has now turned this championship table round into an amazing race we have Quattraro and Alex Renz level on 69 points 
Three points behind them is Alesh on the Aprilia. If you predicted that this year, <laughs> you <laughs> are a Delphic Oracle, sir. Yeah. Then we have Bastianini on 61 points. So he's only a further eight points back from that. And then you got Zarco, who is like 18 points back now. So there's a bit of a gap. It looks as though the top four are all right there. Can Bastianini maintain that pace over the season? Very interesting to watch that. The question is, is anybody from the chasing pack going to put together a string of wins? I would not put a string of wins past Marquez. I think you count him out at your peril, although I do think we're watching a man who has already climbed the summit Mm. And is now starting to go down the backside of that summit, and yeah. mainly due to injuries, not because of will, determination, or oh fight. no, definitely it is not. simply the man's body has gone and is he can't continue at that pace. It's interesting to see where the guy, where the other challenges are going to come from. KTM needs to up their game for this, and hopefully they will. They're close, but they're twenty some points behind right now. But they need to get consistent and get to the front all the time, and we'll just see how this pans out. But we go to Rez next. I think everybody loves Perez as far as a track. I do think the Spaniards are going to be out in force. They will be at the front. It is their home turf. And Quattararo will be fast on that bike again, but it's a bit of a stop-start kind of circuit, which I'm not don't know who that's going to play to. It's You just don't know right now. I'm going to put my colors to the mask. I'm going to go with a Quattararo win again, because he's been very strong at Jerez in the past. The front straight is not really very long, so I don't think that's necessarily going to count against him. And the back straight, which is a bit longer, probably just about, has quite a long fast bend before it. So that will suit the Yamaha. And it was interesting, just one final thing to say about Quattararo at Portimao. I think it was significant that coming onto the main straight, you have a very, very long, fast turn. And it was stunning to see Quattararo power his way past the Suzuki on the straight in Portimao. And I think that was all about grip out of that final corner and the fact that the Yamaha was just working, possibly as we've speculated, because they were able to bolt in a, a there or thereabouts setting from the last time they were there. Because we didn't think we'd see the Yamaha overtake anything this year. But he blasted past the Suzuki, which we know is a fast bite this year. So I'm kind of thinking that you're looking at a Quattraro Rinsmere podium in all likelihood, or at least one Suzuki being on there this weekend. But mm. we'll see. I mean, it's very, very hard to say. I mean, you can't count out the Spargo at any race, I don't think, now. Yeah, I was going to say, my thought would be maybe first V4 home might be a leash. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Don't know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but Portimao was an interesting weekend, wasn't it? Because of the rain uh, and, you know, such a curveball to that and the fact there's such a big mix of new bikes in there, some of which are working really well, some of which are not working very well. I mean, the Ducatis don't seem to be able to get off the line anymore, do they? They've gone from yeah. last year where you just couldn't stop them and now they really are, are struggling to get off the line and it's what's changed there. I mean, there's, I don't know. I mean, that's somebody we're, we're hoping to get onto the show that's some point in the, the coming months who's a technical expert might have a few things to say about that and certainly has some very positive things to say actually about the front shapeshifter uh, which mm. is interesting and its application mm. elsewhere so yeah you'll enjoy that Jim when we make that, that happen. Good one. Teasers people teasers. Teasers yeah so yeah I mean Haref I'm really looking forward to it this weekend don't think it's going to be a weather affected race probably because that tends not to be the case down in that part of the world and very hard to call which is great this is what we want. It's all to play for it's going to be this way I think for the entire year I don't think we're going to see anyone be dominant. And, uh, you know, they might be the lowest point scoring percentage per race world champion ever. Yeah. It might be the best season ever. 
The one thing I can confidently predict at Hareth this weekend is that there will be a massive enthusiastic crowd, much unlike was the case at Portimao, I have to say. Yeah. It was thin, the crowd there, and I was hearing some peculiar strategies that they've adopted in terms of not allowing people to take food or drink in in their bags. So they were forcing people to buy from the stalls, which we know is a very expensive way of doing it, not allowing people to take cameras in. Mm-hmm. Big parking fees. I mean, that's not unusual for us in the UK. We pay for a weekend parking pass at Silverstone I think it's the end of 40 or 50 quid now probably Oof. more yeah it's, it's outrageous but it's very uncommon on the continent apparently to charge for parking and obviously with Hareth following one week after Portimao and it's only a couple of hours up the road I think that's why it was a pretty thin crowd there mm. last weekend so that was a little bit of a shame and possibly it was suffering a little bit from quite recent races back to back, a bit like Cota did, as we talked about last time out, Jim. Mm-hmm. But you can always tell in Spain, the crowd will be huge and it'll be noisy and very lively. So that'll be good to see. Yeah, uh, the I did not know about the food or drink thing. That's kind of how it plays out at Coda. Right. You're allowed to bring in water in a bottle that's sealed and is clearly marked as a bottle that it can't be just like a, like a how do I want to say that? I don't want to say thermos, but people carry around a clear bottle that they'll put water in or whatever here in the States. Yeah. You, you has to be, you know, labeled from whoever you bought it from. And that's all you can bring in. I mean, you are allowed to bring your lawn chair, but other than that, no, if you're going to eat, you got to pay the price for the food there. I mean, we were there, the four of us wound up buying a pizza one day, which was cheaper than doing it individually. And it was like 45 bucks, yeah. which was incredible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, you're talking about parking there. I mean, to be at the track for us Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, and a Sunday night. So essentially, I guess talking four nights was almost 300 quid for us so that was that's a little steep i mean but i'll tell you now if anybody from silverstone management's listening to this podcast and i hope I hope they are. If they start stopping people from taking their sandwiches into the track and force you to pay 15 quid for a burger. Oh, sorry, I just swore. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you count me out. I'll, I'll be going to a race in Europe instead because as much as I like Silverstone as a track, and I do like Silverstone as a track, I think there's some really good corners there. It is a very expensive weekend, very expensive. And if they do anything to make it more so, I think, you know, you will start to see the crowd thinning significantly there as well. So mm. hopefully they won't go in that direction. And these tracks are under a lot of financial pressure. And certainly in terms of the UK, tracks i mean there's zilch in terms of government assistance unlike we see at many many other countries who basically pay every fee there is to host these races you know this has to be done through gate sales in the uk so that is a pressure and i acknowledge that but i think there's a limit when you're not allowed to take a some homemade sandwiches and you know a decent quality camera and to take pictures of your day out i mean i just think that's outrageous and that was what was happening in portimao so no wonder the gate attendance was not that great yep well that's the show we'll come back again and do this again after her F, which will be another fascinating race i'm quite sure mm-hmm. but until then i want everyone to remember to ride safe and remember that to leave us a rating on i iTunes or give us some feedback do that at motopod motopodcast.com if you want to interact with us directly uh, follow at moto rgv on instagram and twitter and rich they can follow you on instagram and twitter at at richard jowett nice and simple uh, you should follow simple. me there so yeah we've starting to get a little bit of twitter activity from a few people quite regularly which is really nice and i'm trying to when i go to like when i was at silverstone the other weekend for the bsb i'm starting to tweet out a little bit and getting some reactions so that's really nice to see that happening as well i just wanted very very quickly before we go jim i just mm-hmm. want to uh, we're not going to talk about it in detail now and god knows when we're going to find the time to do this but two awesome world superbike rounds so oh, far last yeah. weekend at Aston. i mean three better races you will not see and there was some controversy in the third race i don't know if you've managed to see that perhaps we'll i up- saw the controversy okay 
Uh, in fact, there were two things. In the sprint race in the morning, Bautista got penalised when he shouldn't have done for this flipping green no-go area on the edge of a kerb, which, as far as everybody else was concerned, he didn't go into the green, but race direction ruled that he did. So I think that one requires a bit of a look. And then obviously there was the Razgatioglu ray collision in the final yeah. big superbike race, which is dividing opinion <laughs> let's put it politely so three brilliant races um, I'm going to have to catch up with Greg from Eurosport yeah, and get definitely. his take on some of this stuff so we'll see if he'll give us a few minutes uh, to chat again after the next round or something because there's so much to talk about in World Super and I haven't even got started on World Supersport or Supersport 300 the Supersport 300 race the second one uh, on Sunday at Aston last weekend was absolutely through the fingers to watch it it was unbelievably close the whole way through so thoroughly recommend anybody to see that and a quick shout out in terms of British Superbike again haven't really had a chance to talk in any detail about the first round and we probably won't but Silverstone three races three utterly dominant performances on the Honda Fireblade and Glenn Irwin which was not what anybody expected to see so a brilliant brilliant first round for Honda and for him in particular and this weekend they're going to be at Alton Park for round two so that's a very different track obviously to the Silverstone National Circuit it's our little mini Nürburgring going up and down through the hills of Cheshire it is in the in the UK so that'll be interesting to see so again I'll keep an eye on what's going on at Alton Park this weekend and if there's some significant things to talk about then we'll mention those on the next show but it's so busy with MotoGP the sheer number of rounds that yeah it's hard to find time Jim isn't it yeah, I know. I have to get back with Greg White and talk about Moto America because, yeah, I mean, yeah. we had a former Moto GP star dominate in Texas, um, had some crazy races that happened at Daytona, and I think they just got done racing at uh, Atlanta. So, yeah, definitely got to catch up on that. And I think there was a little, not maybe not a controversy, but I, I saw something on one of the socials from Petrucci where something to do with the track, and I didn't know that that's where they were, but if it was Road America, but something happened in one of the races that caused a little bit of consternation on Petrucci part I believe so it would be interesting to just double check on what that was and if there's a bit of a story there perhaps that'd be a good talking point with Greg as well yeah I gotta dig into that one and find a time to talk to Greg (laughs) yeah and then my final thing to say and I will then shut up is that our friend and subscriber to the show now and the donator Hudson Cooper who's the young lad who's part of the Michael Laverty Academy so he's running in the Motul Avali 110cc cup they had their first round um, a couple of weeks ago I think and three first place finishes for young Hudson Kai Cooper so well congratulations Hudson brilliant I mean great start to his new season he's very very active in terms of social media and got a YouTube channel so I'd really encourage people to go out him and his father do an absolutely superb job of this is the modern world that we live in and you have to be active on these things promoting yourself showing everybody what you're doing and doing a superb job has to be said so yeah we're going to be sort of following Hudson and we'll try and catch up with him and his dad at some point during the year and have a little chat and stick that on the show as an interview as well don't know when that will happen but we'll make sure it does at some stage so yeah just want to keep an eye on what Hudson's up to and yeah very very good start for him sounds good okay everybody Ride safe. Cheers. See you next time.